Welcome back to the Yellow Box Podcast. This week, we're joined by teaching pastor Ian Simpkins as we continue the series, Defy Gravity. For more information, please visit us at communitychristian.org. Also, if you need prayer, we invite you to text PRAY to 630-793-6399. Our prayer team is standing by and ready to pray for you. Remember, you can always find us on Sundays at the Yellow Box at 9.30, 11.15 a.m. and 5 p.m. We hope to see you there. Good morning, everyone. How are you this morning? Oh, my goodness. It is good to be here. A very special welcome if you're joining us digitally. Uh, I do have to begin today, though, with a quick PSA. A lot of people are really freaked out. Uh, it turns out um, that big, bright, glowing thing in the sky is actually the sun. And we're grateful for that, yes. I mean, today is Sunday, so it's, um, that's a throwaway. Don't, that's not good. Um, I'm curious, though, by a show of hands, who, who in this room is currently living with a two to six-year-old? Let me, uh, don't lie, we can see the bags under your eyes already. Anyway, the, uh, yeah, yeah I, I currently am. I have a uh, one-year-old and a two-year-old, and uh, I'm curious what happens when you ask a two to six-year-old to do something that they don't want to do. They're just, they're not gonna do it, right? Like, little kids are so good at just being defiant. Like, a lot of kids learn the word no pretty early, right? And I've often seen it depicted as just like a really loud, like, no! My son learned it a very different way. I'll ask Owen, I'll say, uh, son, I call him son, uh, my offspring son, um, can you, uh, could you pick up this toy? And here's what he does, he goes, nah. <laughs> Which is like so much more insulting for some reason, just like, Nah, nah, like you might as well just be saying, nah, bro. No, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna do that. But the way that he shows defiance, actually, uh, it depends on his mood. Sometimes he very calmly just lays on the floor out of pot bellies, um, <laughs> just creepily staring at everyone as they walk by. It's, it's so, that's his defiance. He's like, nope, we're not going anywhere. And he just lays down. Um, sometimes he defies with a smile on his face after we told him not to ride his brother. There he is which he doesn't seem too bummed. He's like, ah, this is my life now. This is how this goes. But sometimes though, sometimes his defiance is as simple as a look and it's just this right there. <laughs> we all know what that look means, right? Like, wh- stop embarrassing me, we're in public, dad. Like, I, I know that I have a lifelong, a lifelong list of looks like that coming my way. But I, I think when it comes to defiance and especially like kids in defiance, it can be really funny as long as it's someone else's kids, right? But I also think there are some acts of defiance that can literally change the world. Like for example, what comes to mind when you see this photo right here? This is a photo of Rosa Parks who refused to give up her seat to a white passenger on a segregated bus in Montgomery, Alabama, and it sparked a nationwide movement to dismantle and do away with racial prejudice in public transport, changed the world right here in this one single act of defiance. How about this next photo? This is Malala who was advocating for the rights of Pakistani girls to go to school and became the target of the Taliban. In fact, even miraculously survived a gunshot wound to the head, which of course only increased this 15-year-old's platform on the global scale. Many of us are familiar with this photo right here, June 5th, 1989. 
the day after the Chinese troops began cracking down on pro-democracy demonstrations in Tiananmen Square, and one guy said no. We don't know him, we don't know his story, we don't know where he came from, we don't know what happened to him, but this photo became symbolic for a life-changing, world-altering act of defiance. Now, I think that a lot of us look at photos like this and we say, gosh, that's so inspiring. Literally, the word spires from the Latin sanctus. When we say something's inspiring, it means that it's life-giving. Regardless of your background or your context, for some reason, seeing stuff like this does something internally to us, and I think there's a purpose for that. Now, we're going to talk about defiance a bit this morning, but I'm I'm not going to ask you to stand in front of a tank or anything, so go ahead and everyone can ease a little bit. That's not that kind of defiance, but I do think, particularly when it comes to this topic of money, wealth, and finances, the Gospels of Jesus actually invites us to a different kind of living, a defiance of the culture that often sort of calls for us this gravitational pull of a me-first kind of life. We talked about this last week, that a me-first gravitational pull of our culture tends to lead to one of three places, hurry, worry, and consumption. Hurry is like this insatiable need or thought that I always need to be buying something. It's the 4,000 advertisements we're hearing all the time, buy this now, call now, order now. Some of us, maybe it's the worry component of our finances. Am I making enough? Will it always be enough? Will I have enough? How much is enough? And then just the consumption piece of us constantly feeling like we always need this other thing to feel whole, to feel complete, to feel like I've arrived. It's this me-first gravitational pull, and it's waters that we're all swimming in, by the way. And this me-first culture, this me-first posture, uh, I think is actually not a new thing at all. And Jesus famously says, where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. Do you want to know where your heart really is? Look at your stuff. And then he offers the antidote. He says this, seek first his kingdom. He's saying rather than simply seeking yourself first all the time, seeking first God's kingdom is this counter-cultural, defiant way to live in a culture that says, look out for number one, throw an elbow to get ahead, climb the ladder at all costs. This rabbi, this Jesus, this Messiah offers a completely different way of living. It's a defiant one. It's one that so often the world looks at and has no real recollection of. And sometimes when we talk about this seeking God's kingdom first way of living, we talk about it like it's a, like a different way of living, like it's something other than who we are. And I want to make the case this morning that a, a kingdom first living is actually who we really are. At, at our core, at our deepest, truest sense, I believe that seeking first God's kingdom is actually how we're wired. How do I know that? Because we're made in the image of a generous God. We bear the image of a God who gives, and here's a couple of places that I think we see that. One, we see God's generosity at creation. In the book of Genesis, we see a God who is generous, who gives freely, who says to Adam and Eve, you are now my viceroys, my, my representatives in this world. Go and dream and create and develop. All of it is yours. It's a gift. The very beginning of the story begins with a posture of a God saying to his creation, here you go. Go nuts. Have a blast. In fact, the psalmist, I think, captures that well in Psalm 24. We read this. 
The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it on the seas and established it on the waters. When you walk out of this building today, we all come face to face with God's generosity. When we see children laugh, when we experience a delicious meal, when we watch a sunset or look at a mountain range, all of that is a gift. It's a gift given to us by a generous God, a God whose posture is generosity. There's a lot of different creation stories in a lot of different traditions. And I don't know any of them except the Bible that actually begins with the posture of a generous God, one who gives and gives freely. The second place I think that we see the generosity of God is at the cradle, a passage that maybe some of you are familiar with. God so loved the world that he gave. It's so easy to miss this because for a lot of us, you can become kind of inoculated to the passage, but it says that his love compelled him to generosity. He so loved the world. He so looked at us and thought, gosh, my heart is aching for the brokenness, the fracturing of shalom that I'm seeing in the world. I love them so much. His instinct wasn't to like write down an idea, offer some instruction. He gives. His giving is the first step. God initiates generosity. Anytime that we're generous, anytime that we live out this posture of giving, it's a reflex of a God who loved first, a God who gave first. God gives first. He always gives first. In fact, I love the way that Paul, writing to the church in Philippi, puts it in Philippians verse 2. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, which is like, you know, no problem there, right? That sounds easy. Same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Your translation may read, um, not to be grasped. He didn't consider this thing that was rightly his something to be held onto. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So God in the form of Jesus steps down from eternity and enters into humanity. The infinite became an infant. Do we understand how scandalous that is? Who didn't consider the power and prestige and authority that was rightly his something to, to grasp, to hold on to, to white knuckle. Instead, he pours himself out and didn't just come as a human, That would have been scandalous enough. Comes in the form of a servant, a servant who will be executed so that we can have peace with God and peace with each other. We see God's generosity at the cradle by pouring himself out, but no more clearly is his generosity seen on the cross. And this may feel odd to to talk about the cross and the crucifixion as an act of generosity, but I want you to think about what that actually is. What's going on there? This is Jesus who is there at creation, the the word of God, literally the universe is coming into existence as a response to God's word. John tells us that Jesus is the Logos, the word of God. And he's being nailed to the very trees that he himself made. The saliva glands that he created are now being used to spit upon the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And he's obedient even to death on a cross, at the cross we see God's unbelievable, unfathomable generosity. Listen to the way that Paul writes to the church in Galatia. It says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins 
to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. He gave himself. Don't listen to anyone who tells you that Jesus was a victim. Jesus gives himself freely so that we could be rescued. We call, we call this the restoring of shalom. Shalom is all the rightness, wholeness, completeness, and there's a fracturing in the way that God created us in the world to live. And regardless of your background, we all feel that to some degree. And so Jesus, rather than simply offering an idea or a set of principles, he offers himself obedience, not just to become a human, not just the incarnation, but the death on the cross. But that cross no longer holds Jesus Christ. The tomb, good news, is empty, and that is where life and freedom is found. But God initiates first. He's the posture of generosity, and he offers us a better way of life, a way of freedom. So how do we actually do that? I think one of the ways that we do that is we live as image bearers. We live as, the way, we live as image bearers the way that we were created to live. And here's, here's what I think that means. Um, in Genesis chapter one, we're given this picture, this depiction of human beings being made in the image and likeness of God, male and female. We call this in, uh, in theology the imago Dei. Now, as a quick aside, this means that every single person you've ever met or will ever meet is made in the image and likeness of God, of a God who knows them and sees them. That means racism, bigotry, it's not just toxic, it's blasphemous. That every person, male, female, old, young, black, white, is made in the image and likeness of God. We reflect this image. It's who we are at our truest, at our core. We are image bearers of God. Now, often when we think of um, this idea of image bearing, I, I think maybe we think about it a little bit like this. We think about it like as a mirror, right? So I brought with me a mirror here. Let me see if I can get this. Oh, this is weirder on the big screen than I was anticipating. Um, okay, so this is how we tend to think of mirrors, right? I look at myself in the mirror, for example. Like my hair is a little floofier than I was anticipating. It's... Uh, downright windswept. I also did not notice the spinach in my teeth. Sorry about that. Um, it's unfortunate. But this is typically our relationship with mirrors, right? I simply look in the mirror and then there's a reflection of me back to myself. We tend to think that being image bearers means I'm just simply reflecting God's likeness back to God. Now I want you to listen to the way theologian N.T. Wright puts it. N.T. Wright says this, it seems to me that God has put humans like an angled mirror in his world so that God can reflect his love and care and stewardship of the world through humans and so that the rest of the world can praise the creator through humans. He's saying it's not just me looking in the mirror and then looking back is another picture of me. He says we're like angled mirrors, and this is gonna get bright for some of you in the front row. I'm really sorry about that. Should have given you sunglasses. We'll make sure everyone gets hit. We're like <laughs> angled all the way up in the nosebleeds. There you are. Hi. <laughs> Some of you thought you were safe up there. You're not. No. I'll get you over here. Now, the point of an angled mirror, as many of us know, gosh, that's really intense. Are you okay? <laughs> Sorry. My goodness. Did not plan this. Um, the point of an angled mirror is that you can see both directions. Being an angled mirror, being an image bearer in the world isn't just simply reflecting God's image back to him. It's reflecting God's goodness into the world. That when we live generously, we're reflecting the heartbeat of a generous God into a world that is plagued by stinginess. When we offer forgiveness, 
We're reflecting the heartbeat of a generous and forgiving God toward a world that likes to hold on to grudges. When we love our enemies, when we pray for those who persecute us in a world that says, hit them back harder so they know not to do it again, we're reflecting the heart and the DNA and the very ontology of a loving, generous, enemy-pursuing God into the world. It's not just simply about having the right things to say, that when we live out this posture of generosity, it says to the world, there's something different about those Christ followers. They may not know what it is, but in a whole entire culture and idea that says, grab onto as much as you possibly can, get the biggest pile you possibly can, and when Christ followers live generously and open-handedly, it sends a message to the world that doesn't understand it. It's part of what it means to be an angled mirror. It's not just the image back to God, but it's declaring to a world caught in stinginess, caught in unforgiveness and bitterness and hatred and division that God calls his people to look and act differently. That's part of how we defy culture. In fact, this posture of generosity was key to the success of the early church. But well before they had stages and screens and fog machines and cameras, they had something that all of us have the capacity to live out. Listen to the way that Acts puts it. So Acts is this account of like the very first expression of the church. In Acts chapter two, it says, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. The resurrection did something to how they saw their possessions. Jesus is raised from the dead and the general sentiment following that was, well, none of this is really ours in the first place then. God gives freely all of this, but they shared everything they had. I looked it up in the Greek, that word everything means, you're gonna, this is gonna blow your mind, uh, everything. It means everything they had was like, why would I hold on to this? Why would I clasp this? Everything they had with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that uh, there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the, mo the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. So translation is resurrected life didn't just have spiritual implications for them sometime in the future. For them, being a Christ follower wasn't just praying a prayer so that they go to heaven when they die. It affected the way they saw their stuff here and now. This is why I think Jesus spends a quarter of his earthly ministry talking about what we do with our stuff because he said, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And God got a hold of their heart and it had an impact on their treasure. If I listen to another account in Acts, it says, all the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts praising God and enjoying the favor of the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So before they had any real like methodology or tools or strategies, they had this radical generosity and people were added to their number daily. The Holy Spirit at work in this community were people who previously saw all of their stuff as something to be grasped, something to be white-knuckled and held onto. God broke through in their heart in some miraculous way where everyone gathered, and we know for a fact that there were wealthy people and there were slaves and everything in between. 
they all saw everything that they had as a gift. The breath that you just took, the fact that your lungs filled up with air just now, is a gift. The car that you drove in to get here is a gift. The fact that we can meet at all without fear of persecution and getting shut down, the fact that we have any of this is a gift. The house you woke up in today is a gift. The clothes that you're wearing, it's a gift. And the, the disciples saw this, and it was an unstoppable force. In fact, we have record of people who are not a fan of these Christ followers writing about their generosity. In fact, there's a historian named Lucian who lived around 120, 200 AD, and uh, he hated Christians. And here's what he wrote. Uh, it is incredible to see the fervor with which the people of that religion help each other in their wants. They spare nothing. So this guy is like not Team Jesus. He's not a fan. But he says, you wanna know what's incredible? The way that they actually live with their stuff. Watching their generosity was like this tangible evangelism. And so often I think people are skeptical of the words that we say or the things that we post, but when they see that we actually live open-handed with our stuff in a culture that has us pulled more and more towards me first, to live kingdom first, I'm telling you, is life-giving. In fact, Emperor Julian, who was also not a, uh, necessarily a big fan of these Christ followers, wrote a letter complaining to some other priests, and here's what he said. Their success lies in their charity to strangers. These impious Galileans support not only their poor, but ours as well. Here's where their success lies. Here's the reason we can't seem to stomp out what they assumed was a cult. Here's the reason the numbers were added to them daily. Look at how they care not only for their own poor, but everyone. Not just the people that are like in their tribe or on their team. They show generosity and charity and love to anyone who had a need. And these people that weren't even a big fan of the movement said, well, that's hard to deny. That's, that's tough. That's tough to dismantle. What would it look like for us to live with that kind of posture? Because I believe that we were created for this. We are made in the image and likeness of a generous God. We see the creation, at the cradle, and at the cross. So today I wanna to do something a little different. I want us to actually sort of put our money where our mouth is. Because I know that for a lot of us, maybe you've heard this a million times, maybe you're hearing it for the first time, but there's, there's tension, there's difficulty. I totally understand that. This has been a journey for me personally. I am in no way standing on this stage as someone who's like arrived. I'm just as prone to hurry, worry, and consumption as anybody. But by the grace of God, the Holy Spirit has done a work in my heart over the years that is slowly chipping away at this sort of me first posture. So here's what we're gonna do. This weekend, we're partnering with our Aurora location and we're taking 10% of our entire offering and we're partnering with some local ministries that are doing incredible work in the world. And we're just gonna cut them a check. Our Royal Location is working with Wayside and the incredible work that they're doing. And we're partnering here with the Aurora Interfaith Food Pantry. Now, if you're not familiar with the Aurora Interfaith Food Pantry, I wanna give you just a little bit of a glimpse. Every single year, they're responsible for distributing more than three and a half million pounds of food to 20,000 families. Come on. I think that's incredible. Three and a half 
million pounds of food to more than 20,000 families, 40% of whom are children, by the way. 40% are children. They have a staff of eight and a volunteer team of more than 500 people of whom we're a part of through Community 412. And so between us and our Aurora location, we're gonna take the entire offering, gonna give 10% to these two incredible ministries that are doing real, tangible work in the world as a way of saying we wanna be a part of making the world better, to restore shalom where there's brokenness and heartache and fear and hunger. We wanna be a part of the solution. So we're gonna do it right now, actually. Every single week we have a moment that we call giving back to God and people will often ask, why, why do you say back to God? And it's exactly what we've been talking about. We believe from Genesis to Revelation, one of the main narratives is that all of this is God's in the first place and we're entrusted to steward it well in the world. So I wanna not just invite you, honestly, I wanna challenge you to be a part of what it is that God is doing in and through this family, in and through this community, in and through our cities. Some of you, I know that you give a recurring gift either through the app or through the website. Can't encourage you enough to do that. Others of you, you prefer to give right now. Let this be an act of defiance. In a culture that says, hold on to as much, as long as you possibly can, this Jesus, this rabbi offers something totally different. Our giving, our generosity, in my opinion, is as much worship as anything we do. Singing, learning, teaching, all of that is important and so is our posture of generosity. Say, God, it's, it's all yours in the first place. The question isn't, God, how much of my money do I have to give? The real question is, God, how much of your money do I get to keep? So what would it look like for us to together defy the gravitational pull of our culture to collectively say we're gonna be a part together of helping people find their way back to God? So ushers, would you come forward, please, begin passing those buckets. I wanna invite all of us to give with this kind of worship posture that it's all a gift in the first place. It's a gift on loan to us. And I also know that this is a much longer discussion. When it comes to our finances, our resources, there are tools and resources that we can actually provide one another to get better at this. Amy mentioned the Together Conference. I can't encourage you enough to go to that. There'll be some financial workshop options. We also have what's called Financial Peace University. That's starting later this month. If you've never done this before, I don't care if you're young, old, married, single, doesn't matter. This will help give you a framework and a foundation for a biblical posture towards our stuff. If you're sitting here thinking like, where do I even begin? How do I even start? I cannot encourage you enough. Go to the website, register. It is an incredible course and you will leave with a, a deeper appreciation and actual resources and tools to how to live this out better. The church in Acts didn't have all of the things that we tend to think of when we think about moving the mission forward, the things that are imperative, what they had was their generosity. They had this absolutely countercultural posture toward all of their stuff. In fact, the Apostle Paul, writing to a young church leader named Timothy, he put it this way, I think it's brilliant. He says, command those who are rich, which is all of us, by the way. On a global level, we're the rich. Maybe it doesn't feel like that, but he's talking to us, and he doesn't say suggest to them. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. He's saying, here's the tendency. It's easy for us to put our hope in wealth, in finances, in our hope 
migrates towards our treasure. He says, teach them not to do that because it's uncertain, but put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Again, he says, command. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I love that picture. Because so often we buy into the lie that by, by gripping onto my stuff more tightly, that somehow is the real life. And Paul is saying, do you wanna know how to really live? To take hold of the life that is really life? Let go. Loosen your grip. You think you're getting somewhere by living like this. This is the way to really live because God first was generous toward us. I think Amy Carmichael put it best, to be honest. She said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. He gives and he gives freely. And he says, you now as my image bearers, as my representatives in the world, go and do likewise. Live generously in a world that is so prone to being stingy. Live graciously in a world that is so prone to unforgiveness. To recognize the Imago Dei in all of us means to recognize that everything that we have is a gift. Let's pray together. God, I know that for a lot of us, myself included, this can feel so counterintuitive, God. And ultimately, to live like this in the world is a miracle. We know this requires your Holy Spirit to redeem and restore that which in us is not honoring to you. So God, that's, that's my request, that you would do a work in our hearts, that you would show us in what areas of our life we've maybe been holding on a little too tightly, that we've bought into the me first gravitational pull. God, help us to seek first your kingdom, not just on Sunday mornings, but with our entire life, God. Help us to live open-handed like that, to reflect the image of a loving and gracious God to a world so need of that kind of light. We thank you, God, and we love you. We give you all the praise and glory. And we pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.